um, Gil spoke about the first factor of awakening, uh, mindfulness, uh, or sati, or awareness. He spoke of the difference between practicing mindfulness and being mindful. And this applies a little bit to all the factors. Um, and most of the time we have some access to all the faculties, a little bit of each of those, uh, of the other um, um, factors, the uh, equanimity, um, you know, we can practice equanimity. You know, we can, when something comes up we don't like, we can practice uh, staying non-reactive. We can practice uh, concentration by keeping our attention on what we're looking at. Um, we can practice investigation in our day-to-day -day practice. Um, but when these factors get strongly established, uh, then we're no longer doing anything. These factors are the way we are. Uh, we're being equanimous. We are concentrated. We're calm. Um, we're, feel, we're joyous. Uh, we're um, practicing. We're, we're being wise. Um, so um, when we're practicing, um, we're on a, we're well, um, the difference between practicing and being is a little bit like in sports, um, uh, like when athletes call, refer to being in a zone. It's like you're no longer putting out effort. The effort becomes effortless. Um, so I'll say a little more about that in a, in a while. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about the second factor and what we call investigation. In Pali, the word is dhamma It refers to the distinctions of mental states. It's, it's known as the wisdom factor. as um, That's the one factor that allows us to see very clearly. Investigation notices the details of our experience, the distinctions between things. It allows us to see things clearly. We already use that quality when practicing mindfulness. That's how we notice whether we're distracted or not. That's investigation. It sees the difference. It's very different when we're in the present and when we're lost somewhere. Um, so we're continuously developing this investigative factor. Uh, even when we're just practicing, even when we're practicing mindfulness. <clears throat> um, when I was six years old, I was very nearsighted, but I didn't have access to corrective glasses. I lived in a big city, which was pretty flat, and I, I had, hadn't seen much nature, just maybe one park. So when my family took a train ride across the mountains, I looked at the beautiful countryside, and there were these beautiful green rolling hills, which I wasn't able to see the detail. So I assumed they were smooth, like in picture books. You know, just smooth green rolling hills. I imagine what it would feel like to roll down those smooth mountains. 
it wasn't until I was like 12 and I finally had my glasses that I went on my first camping trip. And to my great surprise, I found out that nature wasn't so smooth. There were rocks and twigs and thorns and uneven ground. There was no place to roll down the hill. I now saw the details. Investigation is a little bit like putting our glasses on and seeing clearly the details of our experience. In the same way, when investigation strengthens, we start seeing the distinctions. Instead of seeing a painful knee, we might notice all the varied sensations that come and go. We may notice um, uh, tightness, pressure, warmth, pinching, uh, shifting areas of intensity. Um, so this isn't meant to be like an act of probing or doing, but an intimate noticing of what's there. If you walk into a room and you've been, you walk into a room for the first time, you kind of notice what's there. You know, if somebody asks you, what's the room like? You, you get an impression. If you spend more time, more carefully paying attention, you start noticing the different details. In the same way, when inve investigation strengthens, we start seeing much more clearly. There are two aspects that are particularly relevant. What we pay attention to and how we pay attention. In meditation, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta tells us to put away our covetousness and grief for the world, uh, which is to put aside the things we want, the things we don't want to put aside our concerns, the stories we like to think about, the fantasies, the memories. Meditation isn't the time to problem solve, to figure things out, to fix things, to make conclusions. And as the sutta continues, it tells us to pay attention to the body as body, Without the stories we make up about the body, just the body as body right now, feeling as feeling, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects, the contents of the mind as mind objects. Those are the objects of meditation. What's here now in our current experience And the other important aspect is how we look at, at uh, our experience. The process of investigation requires that we look at our experience wholeheartedly and intimately without reservations. With, for instance, if you were investigating a dead body, a cadaver maybe, but you were repelled by it, it would be difficult to really see it because your attention is taken up by the repulsion, 
there really isn't room to investigate. So um, Ajahn Sumedho, and um, this is something I love the way he says this, he describes investigation as affectionate curiosity. It's this wonderful attitude from caring about ourselves, caring about others, caring about the world. It isn't like a, an analysis, a cold analysis. It's, it's affectionate, it's warm, it's intimate. There's no strain when we're investigating. It's not a willful effort, but it's just an open, allowing things to reveal themselves. We offer attention, and as we offer our attention to the moment, the world shows itself. Reality shows itself. And we can't see clearly if the attitude that we uh, investigate with isn't wholesome. Affection and curiosity is a sensitivity that sees the difference between a tight, willful effort and an easeful engagement. Primarily, what gets in the way of, is, is the five hindrances. When desire is present, we want something that's not now. So we're no longer paying attention to the present. We're lost in preoccupation with what we're wanting. When aversion's present, the mind is so busy pushing away something we don't want to be present with. Same with the other hindrances. You know, when we're sleepy, we, we just get lost in the, that dream world. Or when we're restless, we're just jumping from one thing to another, not being able to settle on anything. And doubt, you know, we're lost in, in um, something other than what's happening right now. But by just being aware of the hindrance, recognizing it, it brings us to the present and we're no longer lost. We're no longer pushing away the present. The hindrance is now. And we, can, can you turn your affectionate attention to the hindrance to see it clearly? Ah, this is what desire feels like. We can, we can notice the feelings in the body, the contraction of the mind. And just like that, we're present again. We understand. And it doesn't matter if we get lost in a hindrance again and again. As soon as we notice, then we bring our attention to it. We get to know it. And as our attention steadies, the hindrances begin to dissipate. And when we push hindrances away too quickly, um, just shove them out of the way, the quality of the heart we're cultivating is really aversion, if we have aversion to our hindrances. By welcoming them, giving them room and giving them space, we're actually cultivating the quality of the heart that says yes to what's in front of us. This openness that allows investigation to go deeper and deeper. A moment of really seeing a hindrance 
uh, with an open hand, with an open heart, is just as valuable as a moment of seeing impermanence. It's just as valuable. It cultivates the same part of the mind that looks, sees clearly. For my own practice, you know, when I learn not to rush to squish the hindrance the moment it arose and to give it a warm interest, it really changed my practice and made it a lot happier. Um, I was no longer feeling like I was um, failing every time the hindrance came up. Every time the hindrance came up was a moment of uh, awareness, a moment of understanding. As the mindfulness factor becomes steady, the hindrances get suspended. It's only temporarily, but they do get suspended for a while. Um, then investigation as an awakening factor can strengthen and mature. The purpose of investigation of all the factors is awakening, letting go of clinging, we pay attention in the service of freedom to free our minds from suffering, from discontent, to see deeply into our experience and know for ourselves, not just intellectually, but in the fiber of our being, the truth that clinging always causes suffering and that letting go of it leads to freedom the truth that everything in life is impermanent and we cannot hold on to it. In one way, you know, I think of suffering as just a bunch of unwholesome habits of mind. Habits are just that, they play out in similar ways again and again. As we stay intimate with our direct experience, the factor of, events, of investigation strengthens and we're able to see the distinction between what's stressful in the mind and what's easeful, what's, what's tight, what's relaxed. Um, like Gil says, um, you know, what's ah and what's ouch. And seeing that difference, that distinction lets us know which way to go. This is path, this is not path. And it guides us into continuing the practice and deepening and going more deeply. For instance, we can clearly see the difference between hating or shoulder pain and getting to know it with a kind attitude. We don't actually have to choose. It becomes obvious. When we see this clearly, it just feels better to meet it kindly. 
it feels right. The more clearly we see this, the more naturally we'll let go of the unwholesome, unhelpful habits of mind. Even if we have pain in the body or mind can be at ease. We don't have to actually go looking for it. We don't have to, as, as investigation strengthens, it becomes just the way we look, just the way we pay attention. We're mindful, the, the attention is steady, but the mind is so open and curious and interested and we don't have to work at it. It just comes naturally that way. And when we're developed like this, with the, uh, when the investigation factor is strong, clinging just shows itself, just shows itself clearly. One of the teachings that I found particularly useful um, is the, the idea that if we're struggling, something's being left out of our attention. There's something we're not paying attention to. Struggling is involved with clinging. By giving the struggle a careful, open-handed attention, we can see, see the clinging, see what we might be adding to the experience, what's extra. And this wholesome attention begins to transform or struggling to being engaged in a helpful way. It brings spaciousness. It lightens a grip on it. If we're anxious, investigation adds a wholesome quality to the anxiety, makes it easier to experience it. Instead of worrying, we're now investigating worry. So can we explore suffering without pushing it away, without judging it, with a warm, open-handed, careful attention? Um, I'll read an Ajahn Chah quote, um, a short Ajahn Chah quote. Um, Peace within us is to be found in the same place as agitation and suffering. It's not found in a forest or a hilltop, nor given by a teacher. Where you experience suffering, you can also find freedom from suffering. Trying to run away from suffering is actually to run towards it. And I love that, you know, trying to run away from suffering is actually to run towards it. I've had to remind myself of that many times. Just as we feed our body, either with healthy food or junk food, 
we feed our mind with our thoughts, with the way we pay attention. When we pay attention with affectionate curiosity, we're feeding the mind with what's helpful, wholesome. If we're judgmental or self-pitying or conceited, that's the junk food of the mind. Warm attention's the health food. In a way, the opposite of investigation can be assuming, assuming we already know how things are. For instance, um, a common assumption might be being bored and assuming you know what boredom is like and there's no need to investigate. There's, um, in a way, you know, um, boredom, uh, is a lack of interest. And investigation is really what transforms boredom because you bring the interest to that bored state. There's a, a Zen story um, about a Japanese master, Nan, Nan In, in the 1900, early 1900s. A university professor came to him who wanted to learn about Zen. And so, you know, as was the custom, he served him tea and, um, you know, sat with him. And, and so Nan In poured the professor tea. But once his visitor's cup was full, he just kept on pouring. The professor watched it overflow until, you know, he could no longer contain himself. It's over full, no more will go in. You know, like this cup Nan In said, you are full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? In the early days of my own practice, it seemed to me that it usually took me about 50 to 20 minutes to get settled. So I got in the habit of assuming that's how it was. And I didn't wholeheartedly apply myself for those 15, 20 minutes. I'd say to myself, yeah, yeah, restlessness, and watch some breaths in order to calm my mind, but not really engaging with the restlessness. And it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I just wouldn't show up for the first 15, 20 minutes very often. Uh, just hoping that, you know, I'd settle anyways without me looking. And, um, and I practiced that way for actually quite a while. Um, but at some point, I began to really, you know, more fully showing up for those 15 to 20 minutes. And I stopped waiting until I was settled. I realized that it didn't matter what I was aware of. What mattered was that I was aware and I could be aware with a really restless mind. I could be, um, it added a whole other dimension to my restlessness. It allowed me to be aware with a sleepy mind, with a bored mind, 
Um, and I found that that time, um, those 15, 20 minutes were rich. They were rich. They weren't just biding my time till I got concentrated. Uh, but they, they were, they really helped develop my ability to investigate what's in front of me. Right now, sleepiness. Right now, restlessness. Right now, wanting. And on and on what happens to those, what happened those 15, 20 minutes. Investigation um, can be thought of as a tool for wisdom. It can lead to different kinds of insights. As I mentioned, you know, the factors of play at all levels of practice, from sitting down with a wild, restless mind, you know, we can use investigation just in the process of steadying our attention. But as the mind strength, as mindfulness strengthens, then investigation can take on a more of a liberative quality, a freeing quality, as it can see much more clearly what's wholesome and unwholesome. It can see if there's clinging. Personal insights can be very valuable in practice. And, um, you know, can have a lot of different personal insights as we practice. For instance, um, once on a retreat, I kept noticing like a certain unease that I couldn't pinpoint. And it was just some, something wasn't quite right. And um, as the mind quieted, I finally noticed that every time I brought the mind back to the breath after drifting, it was accompanied by a feeling of letting myself down, of having failed. After seeing it time after time, it gradually dropped away. And, you know, and I had heard uh, teachers mention it, but for some reason, it, it was only when I actually saw that in myself, saw it happening, that I was able to begin to let go of it. Personal insights, sometimes we can notice repetitive thought patterns, like, God, I didn't realize that I worry so much, or, or I spend so much of my life regretting the past. You know, so sometimes, um, you know, many of us are surprised how much time we spend thinking the same repetitive, unhelpful thoughts. So, again, these insights are valuable, and, and they help us in the past. And the personal insights can come at any level of practice. Um, but when the awakening factor of investigation is well established, the practice can also bring us a much, much deeper understanding, a deep wisdom. We can see beyond our personal histories and see clearly that everything is changing all the time. And then none of her changing experience will ever 
bring us lasting happiness. This is not an intellectual understanding, but a deep nonverbal insight into the nature of reality. Everything that arises also passes away. Everything that appears also disappears, including every concept we have of who we are. Everything changes. There are no people, no situations, no accomplishments, no things that can bring us lasting happiness. And seeing this deeply is what allows the deepest of letting go, liberation and freedom. There's nothing to let go. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to cling to. I'd like to end with a couple of minutes of silence. <clears throat> 